Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today, let's continue our conversation in the book of Hosea and see the word of Yahweh to Hosea in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 15. Hear the word of Yahweh, O children of Israel, for Yahweh has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest." You shall stumble by day, the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people, they are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priest. I will punish them for their ways, and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken Yahweh to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains, and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes, and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not, as Yahweh lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can Yahweh feed them now? Like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers clearly, dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know, Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not Yahweh. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with Yahweh, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I'll pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. 
When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. And so again, a bit of context. Uh, in Hosea 1.1, 1, 1, we learn that the word of Yahweh came to Hosea in the days of Uzziah through Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, we call the second, the king of Israel. This is in the... Uh, uh, eighth century before Jesus. It's the calm before the storm, a time when Israel in the days of Jeroboam was politically and economically prosperous, and things seemed to be going well. They felt like they were in a bit of a renaissance. They thought it was going to continue. But there would then be five kings in 30 years, only one of them dying naturally. And the Assyrians would capture at first almost all and then all of Israel in that time. And so Hosea is warning the people in a time of great prosperity that destruction was going to come soon. And he would live to see it all play out. And they did not want to listen to him. In Hosea 1, chapters 1 through 3, we saw this powerful illustration of, of God's love for Israel through uh, the sign acts that Yahweh had Hosea do with his uh, wife, Gomer, who was a wife of Hordom, who had children of Hordom. And his children were sign acts of God's coming judgment. Uh, Jezreel, no mercy and not my people. Was, uh, Yahweh brought forth his charge against Israel, his adulterous wife, that she had believed that she had gotten all of her produce and benefits from Baal when it was really Yahweh who had provided it. Uh, she, she lavished gifts on her lovers, those idols, and she did not give the service due to Yahweh to him. And that Yahweh would come in judgment and she would recognize her heir. But Yahweh would not abandon Israel. He would give hope for no mercy and not my people. And Yahweh would restore Israel to himself, alluring him back, her back. Illustrated in Hosea being summoned to take Gomer back and to have her uh, dwell with him as wife yet again. And Yahweh will indeed love Israel again. And so that has brought us to chapter 4 and 5. Which is framed in terms of an indictment and a judgment. This idea of a controversy in Hosea 4.1 is a reva, it can be a contention, it can be this idea of a judicial dispute. And so we can imagine it, Yahweh's speech as a prosecutor against Israel in a court of law, and the judgment is rendered in chapter 5, what Yahweh is going to do to Israel. So what is this controversy? This is the word of Yahweh uh, to the sons of Israel. This controversy, this contention he has against them. There's nothing good in the land. There's broken faith, there's bloodletting, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. All bounds are broken, bloodshed everywhere. Very awful circumstance. Likely at least somewhat hyperbolic, but it's no doubt reflecting a disturbing society where uh, any concept of, of, of a moral order or right has been abandoned uh, in sake of uh, in selfish pursuits. And uh, we do well to notice that as a result, the land, there's environmental degradation. The land mourns, those who dwell in it languish, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, uh, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. There's great distress because of that. So this is an awful situation in Israel. There's, there's no knowledge of God in the land. So what's happened? Well, uh, this is where we have a very uh, unfortunate uh, seemingly corruption in the text in, in verse 4. Uh, we have the second half of, of Hosea 4.4 4 
is something like, and your people, or and with you, like one, or like my contending priest. Either way, that you, any way you try to make sense of that is, is, uh, is really gibberish, uh, as it has been recorded. And so, like, for instance, the American Standard Version, which is following the Greek uh, Old Testament, uh, tries to make sense of it by saying, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. And that's how that they try to render that. The English standard is following what we call conjectural mendation, which is uh, looking at the text, maybe moving a few letters around to show uh, perhaps a likely story of corruption that gets you, for with you is my contention, O priest. Now, if we're just trying to make sense of what was left, the American standard would have made perfect sense. But the American standard is also amending. Even the American, the Greek text is, is trying to fix what's here. And the English standard, therefore, has a more likely and is certainly more contextually consistent rendering as we continue. That Yahweh, from verses 4 through 8, is con focusing his contention on the group of people who are specifically responsible for the situation at hand, and that is the priests. And they're going to stumble like the prophets do. And this great indictment, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The reason they're destroyed for lack of knowledge in verse 6 is because the priests were to instruct the people in the law in Deuteronomy 31, 9-13. But not only did the priests not instruct Israel, they didn't cultivate knowledge of the law themselves. And so they didn't know they couldn't teach, since they didn't know they weren't doing, and so transgression very easily multiplies. And we see this embodied in the uh, original variation of Israel, where Jeroboam will appoint new priests and have uh, festivals on different days, and uh, has golden calves in Danabeth, all they call Yahweh, in 1 Kings 12. So as a result, Yahweh will judge these priests. They're going to be removed from their station. They're going to have uh, forgotten descendants handed over to whatever was going to happen to them among the nations. Their sins were great, and their shame was great as well, and their prosperity is based on how the people sin, and therefore they're also bent on sinning. Verses 6 through 8, a terrible circumstance. And so the priests are called out for their disobedience. We get the impression the law was not known in its fullness in Israel. And that's a failing of the priesthood. And therefore, we can understand all the more why there's so much pernicious idolatry and a lack of distinctiveness in Israeli religion because uh, they didn't know any better. We would think that if they didn't know any better, that would mean they would be in a better position. But uh, beginning in verses 9 and 10, there's this uh, shift in the indictment toward the people. He talks about the priests as well in verse 9 through 10, but as he continues, the people are definitely in view. These priests are going to be punished. They'll be repaid for what they did. They're going to eat but not have enough. They're not going to prosper because they have not uh, served Yahweh as he would have them to do. And they cherish all that is evil, uh, idolatry and alcohol. And so we're left in this fallacious situation here. Uh... They, they don't have any understanding. They inquire a piece of wood. They get oracles from their staff. And it's a spirit of whoredom that's led them astray from Yahweh. They offer sacrifice to give thanks for the benefits. And everybody's led astray uh, through verse 13. Their daughters and brides commit adultery. But Yahweh said he's not going to specifically call them out for punishment because the men consort with idols and temple prostitutes. And they're all going to come to ruin in verses 13 and 14. Now, adultery is still most likely the reference for idolatry. But it's also fairly certain that the men are frequently what are called the Kadashah, the temple prostitutes. 
Because in ancient Eurasian religion, there's ritual prostitution in honor of various fertility goddesses. In fact, Herodotus claims that Babylonian women would participate in such a ritual and have sex with somebody other than their spouse for money to honor the goddess at some point in their lives in Herodotus' History, Book 1, Section 199. In Genesis 38, 21, that's the way Tamar presented herself before Judah uh, as a Kadashah. And in Deuteronomy 23, 17, 18, it's sharply condemned that you will not have any Kadashah or male uh, equivalents, and you will not accept their money in the temple treasury. And so there's these warnings are around. It's there in Canaanite religion. It's there in Babylonian religion. It's not. It's extremely possible and plausible that Israelite women were also participating in this kind of cult prostitution in honor of Astarte. And Israelite men would visit women participating in such prostitution uh, among Israel and maybe even uh, of the nations. But we see that in all of that, their ignorance is not an excuse. They're still going to be held accountable for their transgression. They're going to come to ruin. The rest of the chapter, he speaks of Israel as a stubborn heifer. They're guilty of adultery, but they should not lead Judah down that path. They must avoid Gilgal and Beth Aven in Hosea 4.15. Beth Aven in Hebrews, house of iniquity. It's probably a play on Bethel, the house of God, and the golden calf there in 1 Kings 12, 25 and 33, also in Amos 4. Gilgal may not be the location near the Jordan in Joshua 4, 20 or 5, 9. It could be somewhere up north near Dan, and therefore represents the other sanctuary in code. In Hosea 12, 11, the same place is mentioned. Either way, Israel is not supposed to persist in their idolatry. But Israel is compared to a stubborn heifer who does not heed instruction. And it's best to read the line as a, uh, as a question. Uh, can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture as opposed to a statement? Uh, it makes a little bit more sense that way. That they can't, it's very hard to take a stubborn heifer and to treat them like a lamb in a pasture. Uh, that they're not willing to take the initiative or to follow, or trust in, in, in the master the way that they should. And Yahweh is resigned in here. He's, he gives up Ephraim to idols. They drink, they whore, their rulers love shame, and all that's left to do is a judgment that's going to come, that wind that's going to blow them away, and they'll finally on that day be ashamed of their sacrifices. So as chapter 5 begins, uh, Yahweh summons priests, the people of Israel, and the king to give heed because of the judgment that's coming. There's a snare at Mizpah and a net at Tabor. The revolters are going to slaughter, but God is going to judge in the first two verses. Mizpah might be the one in Benjamin, most likely Mizpah of Gilead, mentioned in Judges 11.29. Uh, Tabor is Mount Tabor, where uh, Barak had his great victory over the Canaanites in Judges 4-6. Uh, Jerome in the 4th century claimed that the birds were still being ensnared there. There's an intentional parallelism. They're both high places on each side of the Jordan, representing the totality of that part of, of Israel. Might be a reference to an idolatrous practice, uh, maybe a reference to some political malfeasance, especially if the second verse here, the revolters and slaughter, uh, has reference to one of those kingdom upheavals that took place between 752 and 722 with the assassination of a king and uh, his household. He will continue. He, Yahweh knows Ephraim and Israel. They're defiled and whoredom. They don't serve Yahweh. They're unable even to serve Yahweh in that condition. They're going to fall on their pride, and they're going to take Judah with them. It's important to note, we've been talking about Ephraim a lot, and we're going to see Ephraim a lot as we continue in Hosea. Ephraim, without a doubt, is Samaria and the area around the capital. 
whether Hosea is separating out Ephraim because of the royal residence of Samaria only, or he's speaking of the rump state of Israel that was left after uh, Tiglath-Pileser III came through in 732 until uh, Sennacherib uh, took care of it in 722, is not exactly clear. Uh, whether it's just, you know, the, we're, we're looking at that nuance in terms of, ah, uh, this is that final decade or not. Regardless, it's definitely looking at Ephraim uh, in terms of the ruling class and the, and, and the ruling area there. Now, Yahweh recognizes that Israel is going to come with sacrifices on the day of trial. He's not going to be there to save them. He's going to have withdrawn for them. It's very powerful language. He is not there for them anymore. Israel's not observed the covenant. It's been faithless and treacherous with, with Yahweh. They've borne alien children, strange children. New moons are going to devour them. Uh, might be indicting them for intermarriage with the nations around them. Also could be children begotten through these pagan rituals we mentioned. And it also shows that something that we kind of see throughout. Israel's still sacrificing. Israel's still observing festivals. Israel's maintaining all the outward trappings of Israelite religion. But it's going to come to no avail. Then in verse 8, we see uh, Yahweh speaking, as he often will do, as if the, the uh, invasion is happening. And he's kind of projecting forward uh, the blowing of trumpets and horns and sounding alarms. That uh, there's, going to be there's going to be this invasion, there's going to be destruction, desolation, and Ephraim will be destroyed. Gibeah and Ramah are in Benjamin. There are cities in the heights who could see an invading force. Uh, but it's also in the boundary zone with Judah, which might also indicate that the full conquest of Israel is at hand. If that's the last place you have to look, uh, the situation is very dire. And the judgment is going to be uh, very sharp. The idea of pouring out wrath like water is a very powerful, very, very powerful image. That judgment is going to come on Judah, the princes of Judah, because they have become like those who move the landmark. Landmarks in Deuteronomy 19, 14, 27, 17 are boundary markers between land parcels. To remove them was a grievous sin under the law because you're trying to encroach upon your neighbor's land, take his land, take his ancestral property, take his means of living, and it's a form of oppression against your neighbor. It's probably a reference to their participation in idolatry, although it is possible that it is an actual indictment for moving uh, boundaries and maybe encroaching on Israel's boundaries. Nevertheless, uh, that judgment will come on Judah, but Ephraim is going to get crushed in judgment in the meantime. And they have followed the ways of man. They go after filth. Yahweh is going to be a moth to Ephraim and dry rot to Judah. Both of those things destroy over time. And there's going to be nothing left. And Ephraim and Judah are then spoken of in terms of uh, the fact they have a wound. They see that they've got problems. But they go to Assyria think they're going to get healing there, but he's not going to be their healer. Maybe Hosea is making a reference to Menahem's agreement with Pool, tiglath III, which is talked about in 2 Kings 15, 19-21. Ahaz of Judah also made an agreement with tiglath the III to become a vassal in order to eliminate the threat of, actually, ironically, the uh, Pekah, the king of Israel, and uh, Rezin, uh, the Syro-Israelite threat. And in fact, and that would lead to Israel's ruin and Judah's calamity. Because uh, Tiglath Pileser did come down in 732 and completely eliminated uh, Aram and took most of Israel. And then in 701, when his son Hezekiah, his son Hezekiah refused to pay the vassal uh, fee, uh, that brought a ruin, almost complete destruction on Judah as well in 701. 
And it's in this way that Yahweh will be as a lion to Ephraim and Judah, tearing them apart, and none will deliver. They had lions there back then. They saw what lions did. It's an evocative metaphor, and it's exactly what happened. He's going to go back to his place. He's going to go to his throne. He's not going to be in the midst of his people. They're going to cry out. But until they acknowledge your guilt and seek his face, he's not going to be there for them. And even then, judgment will still take place. In this way, Yahweh indicted Israel and rendered judgment on Israel and Judah. And it would come to pass in 732, 722, 701, and 586, as we can see in the book of Second Kings. So what can we get from this? What are we supposed to gain from this? Well, the first thing that we should note throughout this text, and we've seen it before and we'll continue to see it, is just how pagan Israel is. And that seems to be a controversial declaration, but it's something that's historically and biblically verifiable. Israel in the days of the kings was a pagan nation. Throughout Yahweh's indictment and judgment of Israel in Hosea 4 and 5, Yahweh again and again points out the pagan practices in which Israel participated. Idolatry, likely called prostitution, offerings to trees and on high places. By the way, we talk about cult in this context. We're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, marginalized or, or, or very disturbing religious groups. A cult is just kind of the... All of the rituals and people involved in serving a god to some degree or another. Now, all this stuff that they're doing is not according to the law. It's consistent with the behaviors of the Canaanites and other ancient Near Eastern nations, though. Well, uh, how did Israel get there? You know, that, that's the question. When we get over the shock of the idea the people of God are actually pagan, well, how did they get there? In Romans 1, 18-31 uh, we'll read some of that where Paul talks about uh, how people have gone wrong. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, Paul is here describing the degeneration of paganism. How people should have known about God, didn't give him glory, and instead uh, went in a very deviant path. But that is exactly the same indictment Hosea is making against Israel. How did Israel get to the point where the land is saturated with sin, full of uh, the shedding of blood and sexually deviant behavior? Because they did not know God or give honor to God, but instead gave the honor due to God, the creator, to the creature. 
they were destroyed for lack of knowledge in Hosea 4.6. And when they didn't have knowledge of God and the priests didn't have knowledge of God, nobody remembered who God was. What happened? They just did what everybody else around them was doing. And what was everybody around them doing? They were giving honor that God deserved to the creation. They committed sexual behavior. They shed blood. And they have obtained because of all this God's judgment. And that's why we need to learn them from Israel's example. Because when there's no insistence on true knowledge of God based on what he has made known, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to conform to the nations around us and become as pagans. We can see it in those around us. There's so many strong cultural pressures right now to conform to what culture says is right compared to what the Word of God says. And it's very easy to see groups of people who cannot commend or justify the things they're doing by appealing to what God has said in the Scriptures. Instead, they appeal to cultural norms and cultural expectations, just like you could imagine the average Israelite on the street in 750 being able to do before Hosea. That is why we must not do that ourselves. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 3.18. We must hold firm to the scriptures which equip us for every good work in 2 Timothy 3.14-16. through 16. The people of God are always under the temptation to become as a pagans and to live as pagans. And we need to avoid that temptation and to do better than Israel did, lest we share in Israel's fate. Because if we become as pagans, we will suffer the same fate as pagans, which is oblivion and condemnation. It's also interesting there when we look at that in, uh, indictment there in Hosea 4 and through 3. The effect of the sinfulness in the land. The sins that the people commit don't just cause problems among themselves. They also uh, negatively affect the environment and other creatures. If it were just this, it would be you know an oddity. But there's a theme also in Isaiah 24, 4 through 12 and Jeremiah 12, 4. Now, there's no doubt that at some level this is a, a reference to the abuse of the land. After all, if somebody is going to oppress other people. If they're going to not follow any healthy guidelines with other people, they're not going to follow healthy guidelines in terms of maintaining the land, and they will overexploit and overuse natural resources. But it seems that the main point is that sin is not just a transgression that has personal consequences. It certainly is that, but it goes beyond that. That when we commit sin, we are causing fundamental disorder in God's creation. And its effects are more than just in my life and the life of all those who might uh, have to deal with the consequences of my sin. Uh, that, in fact, when we, when we keep doing this, we, we cause great difficulty. So if a land is saturated with sin, uh, it's going to mourn. It's going to have, its people are going to languish. Its animals, its creatures are going to be no more. And so if the environment's in distress, there's likely a people laden with sin not far away from it. Verses 4 through 10 of chapter 4, we also uh, do well to understand the uh, implications of the indictment that Yahweh has for the priests. They were given the responsibility to know the law themselves and to teach the people. They failed on both counts. They received sharp condemnation because of that and judgment. Now, James 3, 1 is an important text. Let not many of you become teachers because we will be held to a higher standard. But James' concern about teacher doesn't invalidate the fact that we are told to go and make disciples of the nation, teaching and baptizing. And Matthew 20, 20 18 through 20, and Ephesians 6, 4, to instruct. 
the youth and instruct others in Christ. Um, we who have some knowledge of who God is have the obligation to encourage other people to come to a better understanding of God. And we would not want to see other people be destroyed for that lack of knowledge, like Israel was destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so it is for us to teach them, to encourage them. Now, we understand that there's a lot of responsibility there, because if we lead them astray, we're responsible for that as well. But the fact that we would lead them astray is a form of responsibility doesn't mitigate the fact that on the other side, not saying anything at all is as much of a... Uh, rejection responsibility, and we're going to be held in judgment for such things. And yet, uh, while Yahweh does indict the priests and, and has strong, strong words for them, the people aren't excused because of it. They are condemned for their idolatry as well throughout this passage. They are the covenant people of God. They offered sacrifices to Yahweh. It's not like they can use ignorance as an excuse. So many to this day wish to not know or to pretend to not know, assuming they can somehow plead ignorance. The idea that, well, I can't, you know, how can we really know? You know, I'm sure God will just understand. I'm sure God will forgive. I'm sure God will, will make a way. How many times I didn't really know, officer. And the, I think that with God, well, I didn't really know that's what I was supposed to do. That's not how it works. We are to know based on our knowledge of God, and we will be held responsible. In chapter 5, we see the judgment of Israel. Yahweh will abandon Israel over to its fate. They're going to cry out to him on that day. He's not going to listen to them. It's all that Yahweh can do after all these appeals have been made to turn and be healed and they haven't listened. And it came to pass. By 721, before Jesus, all Israel was under Assyrian domination. And within a few more decades, almost everybody was exiled. These Israelites were not going to inherit the promise. Now, it may not be popular to mention, but to this day, there's a prospect of judgment for all people. Uh, we see it in Romans chapter 2, 5 through 11. We also find it uh, very eloquently put in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Since indeed God consider it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If we have not proven obedience to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, then God's going to abandon us over to a miserable fate. In Revelation 20, 11-15, that fate is spoken of in terms of a lake of fire, the second death. But if we're going to prove faithful, we remain in the presence of God for eternity. The beautiful picture, the glorified people of God in his presence in Revelation 21 and 22. And that is why we do well to be faithful to the covenant God has made with all mankind in Christ, to believe in him, confess his name, to change our hearts and mind, follow after him, to be immersed in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, to follow after him throughout our lives so as to be saved. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus, you'd like to see more about Hosea, talk about some of the things you heard about in the lesson, maybe you'd like to read some articles, or maybe you want to interact with us, 
to find out more about us. You can look us up online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. If you'd like to contact me directly, you can get a hold of me, Ethan, at my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Leave your comments about anything you feel about the lesson or anything of the sort. We again thank you. Have a great day.